Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Now, when I say the words professional chef, you probably automatically imagine a restaurant chef. But there are many different ways to cook professionally outside of the restaurant industry. I mean, I'm a prime example. I'm a private chef, and I cater small events and parties. And there actually was a time early in my career when I was the chef at a rectory. Coming up on Seasoned, we talk to two chefs who cook for the clergy. What's it like cooking for the Archbishop or the Archdiocese of Hartford? No pressure. We'll ask our guest chefs what they're planning for Easter dinner later on in the show. But first, our guest Julia Tertian is an author many home cooks have come to know well. Julia is a food writer and activist. She's the author of Small Victories, Feed the Resistance, and Now and Again. Her latest book is Simply Julia, 110 Easy Recipes for Healthy Comfort Food. We talked to Julia about what makes her new book her most personal and about what healthy comfort food means to her right now. Well, Julia, thank you for joining us on Seasoned. We're so excited to talk to you about your latest creation, your cookbook. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to talk to you. It's both personal and practical with all of these stories and recipes and such. So how is it personal for you? I would say this is definitely the most personal book I've done. You know, all my work has been pretty personal. I've always shared, you know, the stories behind recipes. And those stories for me always are about my my family and my friends and my upbringing. But this book goes just a bit deeper. And it does so in a few ways. You know, I wrote some essays in this book, which is not something I've done before. So, you know, I was given the space to kind of reflect just a bit more. And then I think another thing that really makes it feel incredibly personal is that my handwriting is a big part of the book. You know, the title of the book right on the cover, it's my handwriting. And then every recipe title in the book is also in my handwriting. So there's sort of this kind of like literal personal touch is how I think of it. A literal fingerprint. As yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and there's a lot of old, you know, like family photos and photos of friends. So I tried to wherever I could, if I was telling the story about someone in my life, I, I wanted you to, you know, meet them and see them and put a face to the names. So there's a bit of like a, I guess in some ways, like a photo album, like a scrapbooky quality to it. I think there's also a bit of like a memoir quality to it because there is just so much writing in addition to the recipes. So yeah, as you said, the most practical book I've done, but definitely also the most personal. And it's it's nice to put those two things together. Julia, you know, as a chef, I look at the title and, you know, I, I see comfort food and immediately to me, comfort food, it's a very regional because it's different for every single person what comfort food could be. Mm-hmm. What does comfort food mean to you? Mm, I really appreciate what you just said there about like, you know, it's different for everyone everywhere. And honestly, for me, it's different on like a daily basis. Comfort food for me is whatever makes me feel like I am eating something that makes me feel like I'm either taking care of myself if I'm making it or I'm being taken care of, you know, someone else is making it for me. So it could be any number of things. Like last night, it was really late and I just I don't think I ate quite enough for dinner earlier in the night and I was hungry and there was some leftover chicken soup in our fridge and I just heated it up in the microwave 
it was, you know, chicken soup was a pretty classic comfort food. But in that moment, it was like the best thing in the world. I felt yeah. so just taken care of. And, you know, I just put something in the microwave. Like it wasn't any big deal or anything. So, yeah, I think that the caretaking is a big part of it for me. That's a great way of thinking about caretaking. My mom used to make a lasagna. My mom wasn't a cook. And minus all, I apologize for the story already because you might have heard it. <laughs> my mom was is not a cook and she would try to make lasagna and she didn't know what ricotta cheese was. So she used cream cheese. But now... Okay. As a 25-year professional chef, I put a little cream cheese in lasagna now because it's comforting to me. Yeah, I was about to say, that sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> it works well. It does work well. <laughs> With this, I, I, that's probably the 29th time I've heard that story. But you know what? Okay. It, la- it landed differently this time, Plum. Just landed Thank you. First time, first time here. So. Always, always. Exactly. Always. Um, whenever we talk a lot about comfort food on this program, and I think um, – Comfort food can sometimes have this connotation, for example, lasagna. It's not a light food. It's not necessarily associated mm-hmm. with being the picture of health. You know, for me, it's, you know, arroz con gandule en lechon, you know, mm. pork and starch, mm. delicious, but not necessarily the healthiest thing. I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking to us about your relationship with food um, sure. and, and sort of how you came to where you are. And I'm being a little bit ambiguous because I want you to tell your story. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, I really appreciate just now having the opportunity to reflect on like how I define comfort food. But this book is, it's a book of healthy comfort food recipes. And I was very intentional about putting those two words together. And I think for me, at least, they have a lot to do with each other. You know, when I am feeling taken care of, when I feel that sort of power of comfort food that we were just talking about, that's when I feel my healthiest. It's when I feel least stressed, (laughs) you know, least worried, just very, yeah, just totally taken care of. So for me, it's really important to, I guess, clarify that, you know, I wrote a book of healthy food that is not about weight loss. It's not about deprivation. It's not about restriction. It's not about any type of limitation or judgment. It's about joy and pleasure. And yes, there's like tons of wonderful recipes for vegetables and stuff like that because I love them. They're wonderful to eat and fun to cook. There's recipes that are informed by the fact that my wife, Grace, lives with type 1 diabetes. So we are not, you know, opposed to things like carbohydrates or sugar in our house, but we're just very mindful of them. You know, we pay attention to them. So many of the recipes are informed by the community work I do, cooking in my community. I do a lot of cooking for an organization that we, we serve homebound clients who have all types of serious illnesses. So we're trying to make food that's really appetizing. Many of them are, you know, on pretty intense medication and don't really have an appetite, but it's important that they eat and they get that nutrition. So we're trying to make food that's not challenging, but is really familiar and is really just, yeah, comforting and cozy and full of care. And also, you know, is packed with as many nutrients and vegetables and all that kind of stuff as possible. So to me, healthy is not so much about what I'm eating. It's how I feel when I'm eating. It's my entire relationship to food, you know, not just cooking, but also eating. And it comes from a very personal place because... I've always had this really positive relationship with cooking. I've loved to cook since I was a little kid. My childhood nickname was Julia the Child. (laughs) Um, It was just sort of a happy coincidence. But I have not always had such a positive relationship with eating. Um, I've often felt very fraught about eating. and, And I've had body image issues like so many people have had you know, especially women, I think. And I just wanted to be really honest about that in this book and talk about how I've come to define healthy as being a really positive thing and not something that's tapping into any restriction of any kind. 
cooking for people who have dietary restrictions can be very, very difficult sometimes. Yes. Just, just to kind of, you still want to maintain flavor. I've had clients where I've had to not use salt and, you know, not use any kind of fat or, you know, things like that. It can be very, very difficult. And it's funny, Julie, you just got my brain turned. I, I was dying to tell you, I had a client once who I was working with who would call me every day and tell me, uh, he was a former Broadway actor. He would tell me what he was allergic to that day. He would say, chef, I can't have anything green. I can't have anything red today. And it really is terrible for trying to make a menu at 6 a.m. But, <laughs> but when you have clients and people who force you to work that way, you, you, you're forced to learn different techniques to add a lot of flavor to it. I'm guessing yeah. you a lot of that as well. Yeah. You know, I used to do a lot of private chefing. It's something I talk about a bit in the book. And, you know, everything you're saying just sounds very familiar to me. And I think when it comes to restrictions, whether, you know, they're allergies or preferences or whatever it might be, I actually find that they give me as a, as a cook, a lot of potential for creativity. Yeah. I think sometimes, you know, when you're given certain restrictions, then you get to kind of like explode all the options <laughs> within them. And sometimes when you just have every option available, at least for me, it feels a little overwhelming, almost like when I turn on my television these days, you know, between Netflix and Hulu and whatever I've signed up for. I feel like I've signed up for so many things, but I turn on the TV and then I'm like, there's nothing to watch. I don't know what to watch. <laughs> and you've spent <laughs> an hour me- trying to figure out what to watch and then you're just going to bed exactly. having watched nothing, right? Exactly. But if you told me here's 10 TV shows and movies to choose from, I would have no problem like selecting one. Is that a dog in your midst? I was about to say, (laughs) I was just walking away for a second because I thought that she might bark and she is. So um, it's quite all right. Julia Tertian is in her, literally in her backyard. (laughs) I feel like she knows when it's like, yeah. When I have this exciting opportunity to talk about right. my work. She's like, wait, here I am, here I am. <laughs> Don't forget about me. Yeah, that's Winky barking. <laughs> so cute. Winky. So you are you are <laughs> born and raised in New York, correct? Correct, yep. It would be remiss of me not to ask about your opinion on bagels, because bagels are a very <laughs> New York thing. And I think I read somewhere that one of your favorite recipes is an everything bagel hand pie. Yeah, that is very accurate. So, I mean, my opinion on bagels is that I love them. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up with them. Do you have a favorite spot? Did you go to like H&H? Oh, or did you... that is such a hard question. No, it's like picking your favorite dog or your favorite child. Probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're actually hearing both of our dogs. We have two dogs, Bark and yeah, I, I can't pick one. When I was a kid, we used to pick up bagels from H&H all the time. Um, and... I went to college on the Upper West Side near Absolute Bagel. I think those are really good. I don't think I've met a bagel I really haven't liked. <laughs> like, I like most bagels. I love Murray's bagels. I love the ones at Russ and Daughters. I'm a pretty, like, equal opportunist. And they just remind me so much of my childhood. And I just, I love bagels. And I think that there's definitely room for them in any kitchen kitchen table that is you know serving healthy food like bagels to me can absolutely be part of that they're at least for me tied to so many memories and that sense of connection is a really wonderful thing when it comes to sort of healthy cooking yeah. and eating but yeah about the everything bagel hand pies that's a recipe in the breakfast section of the book and it's my wife's favorite recipe in the book i mean i really love it too and they're really, really fun to make. It's this incredibly easy dough, just some flour, a little baking soda, and some yogurt. It's really, really easy to work with. It's a great dough to make if you're kind of new to baking or intimidated by it in any way. I used half whole wheat flour, half all-purpose flour. Just I like that kind of extra nutty flavor, the whole wheat lens. It gives you some extra fiber and stuff too. But for me, it's really a flavor thing. 
And then you fill uh, the dough, you roll it out into circles and you fill it with some scrambled eggs with scallions in it, mostly just because I love scallion cream cheese and that flavor, you know, with bagels. And you fold the dough over, you make like a little half moon, you brush it with some egg and you put everything bagel seasoning on top and you bake them. And basically they're like, they're essentially like Hot Pockets. (laughs) They're like breakfast Hot Pockets, you know, like a little ham pie. They're so wonderful. They're so fun to make. And, you know, they're wonderfully portable. They freeze really well. And they have all the flavor of a great sort of bagel, egg, sandwich breakfast. I can see making this and like my boys play sports and we're out the door at an ungodly hour and I'm always stopping somewhere and then kicking myself that I have to pay $7 for bacon, egg and cheese when I could have made it at home. Mm -hmm. It sounds like something if I make the night before. Totally. Wrap in aluminum foil. Exactly. Hopefully not eat them all before the game. <laughs> you have the total right instinct. You can also make like an, you know, a double or triple batch and just stick them in your freezer and, you know, pop them in the oven, you know, as you're getting ready and take them with you. And you can fill them with anything. I did the scrambled egg and scallions because I really love that. But yeah, you could put a little bacon and cheese for your boys with the egg. You know, you could do non-breakfast ones. You could fill them with, you know, vegetables, maybe a little goat cheese, whatever you want. It's super flexible. And I just think it's it's a nice sense of accomplishment to make something like that from scratch and find out that it's really not that complicated. I love the yogurt in there too. Using the yogurt in there kind of, it, it, it almost makes it I don't say foolproof, but it's kind of hard to mess it up. Exactly. Pretty easy, you know? Yeah. That is always my goal with my recipes is I want to figure out the quickest, easiest way for, you know, my fellow home cooks to make something that's really satisfying. So I'm going to go through every option possible so I can land on something like this simple combination of just, you know, flour and yogurt, which, you know, I'm not the first person to come up with that. Like that's been around for a while, but I just find it exactly what you said, really foolproof. And I want everyone who opens, you know, my book to know that I've gone through that process. So you don't have to, (laughs) and you can just, you know, trust this one. It's good. It's going to turn out really well. That's fantastic. So you wrote this book in 2020, which is like a, I mean, (laughs) probably a perfect year to write a book. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Plenty of time to do lots of testing in there. And it's pretty reflective and personal, which is one of the things I think we like the most about it. But there's Mm. a picture in the back of the book with you masked, which I think is just mm-hmm. very, I don't know, it's a very representative picture of, of 2020. Like we're cooking, we're wearing masks, you know, I don't, yeah. from a professional standpoint, that's what we've all been doing. Of course. Yeah. I'm really grateful I got to include that photo. And to be totally honest, I actually didn't even realize when the photographer took that photo. It was on the day we were shooting the photo for the cover and the cover of the book is, is a picture of me in my kitchen you know, we were taking all the precautions that are, you know, responsible to take. And the only time I ever took off my mask was when we were absolutely ready to take the photo. And I was the only one who would take it off. So in between, I would put it, you know, right back on. And I was just leaning against my counter waiting for the photographer to make sure everything was set. She snapped this photo that I didn't realize, you know, of me in the mask. And I had said to my editor, like, hey, maybe we should put it in kind of like as a joke. And she was like, no, we should absolutely include it. And (laughs) I'm really glad you brought it up because, you know, I've gotten a lot of messages from people saying, you know, I'm really glad you put that in and you didn't pretend this wasn't happening. Right. right? right. Like, I think it's important to acknowledge the circumstances during which, you know, any work is made, you know, whether it's a cookbook or something else. And for me, the circumstances of the past year just have reaffirmed for me just how important home cooks are. We are the people who are just the anchors of our homes um, and often of our communities. You know, I think home cooks tend to be the people who are also 
volunteering at local food pantries and the first ones to sign up to, you know, pack the extra lunches for kids and all that kind of stuff. Like Mm -hmm. home cooks do so much. And I think there's so much labor involved in home cooking. You know, we're not in restaurants. We don't have other people prepping for us or cleaning up. We're doing the whole thing. Like we're keeping track of the inventory. And I just think it's a lot of labor that goes kind of undervalued. And I just wanted to make a book that really acknowledged that and just thanked people for what they do because it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Listen, whether you're doing it one night a week or every night a week at home or Plum, who's doing it every night a week, sometimes twice a day. First, Multiple times a night. For someone else. Yeah. If you talk, you find me those people who do all the counting for you and, and chop things for you, I'd love to meet them. I've never had one. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for a short break. We're talking with cookbook author Julia Tertian about her latest book, Simply Julia. Then later in the hour, we talk to two chefs who cook for the clergy in Bloomfield and Hamden. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, more of our conversation with Julia Tertian and more healthy comfort food recipes from Julia's book, including her potato chip crusted salmon cakes with peas. So it tastes nice and fresh and it's colorful and it's fun. And it's also made of like pantry ingredients and it's not that expensive and you don't have to chop anything. All you have to do is cut up the lemon. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're spending much of the hour with author and activist Julia Tertian. Her latest book is Simply Julia, 110 Easy Recipes for Healthy Comfort Food. Now, Julia had to be outside during our recording because her internet was out and she was waiting to be rescued. Happens to everybody. And sure enough, the repair guys arrived as we were wrapping up. So during our interview, you'll hear the sounds of nature, (laughs) including her dogs Hope and Winky, who were very much family members to Julia and her wife, Grace. And you'll hear wind challenging our audio in some parts. Julia, so one of the things that we love on this program with books is lists. Mm. And you have some great lists talking about the five tools you swear by, the five things that are always in your spice drawer. Talk about putting lists like that in the books. I think that's so helpful. I'm so happy to hear that because I, as you know, I love a list. (laughs) There's so many in the book. They're a way to just basically add more information to the book in a way that just keeps it pretty accessible. And so there's five lists at the beginning of the book. Each list has five items on it. Some that you just mentioned, like my favorite kitchen tools and so on, like really practical stuff. And at the back of the book, there's even more lists. There's seven. And each of those has seven things on it. And they range from also the really practical, like things you can do with leftover buttermilk. Cause that's a question I get asked all the time because people will buy it to make pancakes or something. And they use one cup of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, it comes in a quart. So it's four cups and then they're sitting there with three cups. They don't know what to do with. And I've just been asked that so many times over the years. So I was like, this is a fun way to come up with some ideas of what you could do with it. And there's also some list in the back of the book that also address things that aren't necessarily about cooking, but about just the overall experience of eating. So there's a list of seven really 
wonderful questions you can ask to sort of prompt meaningful like mealtime conversation. They're also really great. Like if you're on Zoom with your relatives and you don't know what to talk about anymore, you know, it's kind of like a fun car game. So I guess the lists are a way for me to just put a lot of random things in the book, but have them make sense. But mostly I include them because that's how I organize my thoughts. You know, I write lists all day. I think mm-hmm. that's super common for anyone who's involved in in the food business because we're keeping track of so many things, whether it's ingredients or just tasks that need to be done, different dietary needs and restrictions. We keep track of all this information. So yeah. I guess I just wanted to share the way I keep track of it with hopes that that might be helpful in some way. Yeah. On the buttermilk thing, I think the first thing you tell people, at least for me, I tell them, Pour it over chicken and let it sit in it overnight. Yeah. First things yeah. first. It's so good. Even if you're just going to roast it in the oven, just pour it over the chicken and let it sit mm-hmm. in it overnight mm-hmm. with a lot of black pepper. I love that idea too. But I was also, the first time I was making, I think I was making an Irish soda bread and I was like, what am I going to do with the leftover buttermilk? So instead I just turned whole milk. I just put a little bit of apple cider vinegar in it. And I was like, oh, oh yeah. look, I'm a scientist. Mm-hmm. I did a thing. Wow. The one thing I could accomplish. <laughs> <laughs> that works really well. Can you, t- first of all, just selfishly, actually both of you, so I went, I needed kimchi for a recipe. I went to the grocery store. I didn't know which kimchi to get. Do either mm. of you have a brand you're loyal to? What am I really getting myself into here? Because it was for a salmon. I'm sorry, chef. I had to deviate from the salmon you taught me over the holidays. Give it to me. Kimchi. Julie, you can go first. Go ahead. It's one of your staples. It's with your Dijon mustard and yeah. Yeah, it's something I always have in my fridge because it basically is just a jar of flavor that you didn't have to do any work for. Right. You just have to buy it. <laughs> and yeah, it's so versatile. I use kimchi in so many different things. I mean, I like it just on its own, but it's also, it's great like in a grilled cheese sandwich, delicious. It's good chopped up, put on on a hot dog, yeah. <laughs> like instead of relish. Like it's in so good. In a grilled good. cheese sandwich. I, I didn't think about oh, that. Oh, it's so good. Kimchi and cheddar cheese are like mm-hmm. best friends. So, but in terms of buying it, you know, I have to say hearing that you have this much choice mm-hmm. at your market makes me so happy happy to know that it's that popular now that, you know, there's, you have the kind of uncertainty of which one, (laughs) like, I think that's great news. And it is a little confusing. I think if it's not something you grew up with, if you're not familiar with, because kimchi is basically like a verb, like you can kimchi so many different things, different vegetables and stuff. There's a ton of different variety, but I think the most commonly consumed type, the one that I reach for the most And I guess I should just share that this is backed up by some knowledge on my part. You know, I'm not Korean. I didn't grow up with it. It's not something like my mom made, but I worked on a Korean cooking show, a PBS show in the cookbook. So I got to travel a bunch there and learn a bunch about it. So that's just where my information is coming from. But I would say reaching for a cabbage kimchi, that's the one I use the most. I like really spicy kimchi. So if if I see something that looks really red, (laughs) I'm into it. My wife really likes spicy food, but doesn't have a very high tolerance for it. So there are things like white kimchi, which is just kimchi without chili. So if you don't like spicy, you know, you can have that. I honestly kind of like bagels. I have not ever purchased a jar of kimchi. I dislike that you did that you disliked, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I don't know that you can make a wrong choice. And I think the best thing is just to, you know, buy the one that looks appealing to you, see how you like it. And if you're into it, great. And if not, next time you get a new one. And the brand I love the most, it's not available everywhere, but the one I just I really love it. I think it's so good. This is like not sponsored. <laughs> it's just what I like. It's actually called Mother in Laws. That's the brand name. 
That's exactly the one I was. That's the one I was going to say. Oh, is it really? Oh, amazing! Because you can get it pretty much everywhere now. They had it. That was one of the the brands they had yesterday. Because I thought, oh, that's a cute name. Yeah, mother-in-law kimchi. You can get it. It's, most grocery stores carry it now. It's in the produce section a lot of times. Oh, cool. Yeah, they're great. It's a great one, and there's different heat levels on it. It's 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 perfect. You know, the other thing with kimchi too, it's really easy to make yourself. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not rocket science. It, Are you digging holes in your backyard? And putting and putting those clay jars in and letting it ferment for like a year, and then you're bringing it back up. And... Three to five days will usually do the trick for you, but you can go a year if you want. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's why I'm taking this call outside. I'm just I'm checking on my kimchi jars. I wish that would be awesome. Could you imagine? If I had it going. And it's a great segue back into health food because you know fermented foods can be very very healthy. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, so good yeah. for you. Yeah. I like that we started talking about kimchi from this place of like flavor and versatility before we even mentioned how good it is for you. And that's kind of how I approach healthy food. Like to me, healthy food sometimes gets a bad rap as like being really just, you know, plain steamed vegetable with no flavor. And, you know, it's like almost a punishment. (laughs) And for me, because I define healthy as this sort of joyful relationship with food, it like, it starts with flavor. Like I love kimchi because I love the way it tastes. Like I'm not thinking about probiotics and all these other things it offers and vitamin C. And those are all like amazing and wonderful, but I love it because I love cooking with it. I love eating it. Like I start from that place. I think you're absolutely right. The word healthy for a long time kind of had that uh, like polarizing connotation to it, you know, and I, I think yeah. we're, we're kind of getting out of that. You know, I think we're yeah. slowly turning out of that. Great food is great food in the end. Exactly. Let's talk some recipes. Yeah. I was just going to say, can you talk to us about the ricotta and potato chip fish cakes with peas? these are so good so these are basically like my take on like a pretty classic salmon croquette they use you know some canned salmon which i think is a wonderful ingredient just like canned tuna i think it's something people don't embrace enough in my opinion well wait 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 a minute plum's head looks like canned salmon (laughs) Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. tell me why yeah because you can get really good quality like wild salmon it's already cooked it's like the bones are out it's a really great ingredient and there's really good brands. And, you know, I feel like I don't flinch at the idea of canned tuna. And, you know, I think that can extend to pretty much any fish. So I think it's really underrated. All right. I'm going to buy some canned salmon. Do it. That's terrible. I'm <laughs> going to Instagram it. you. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Yeah. It's- I'm, t- I'm trusting you. Maybe mix it with some kimchi. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great. <laughs> so for this recipe, you know, normally something like a fish cake, a croquette usually involves like eggs and breadcrumbs, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I wanted to just have a little fun with it. So instead of eggs, I use some ricotta cheese, which I love because it's just it's creamy and it gives so much moisture. And the idea of salmon and ricotta to me reminds me a little bit of like salmon and cream cheese back to cream cheese. <laughs> and then instead of breadcrumbs, I just crush some sour cream and onion potato chips and I mix those in. I do that because one how fun to crush a bag of chips yes. <laughs> and two they have so much flavor you know the sour cream and onion tastes so good and three it actually allows this recipe to be totally gluten-free which is not a requirement for everyone but for some people i think it allows them to have something they normally wouldn't be able to have so you make these little patties you know like you're making hamburgers basically and you just brown them in a little butter the fish is already cooked and you just want to get like a nice little you know crust on them And then you put some frozen peas right into the same pan 
So you don't have to wash two skillets or two pots. You put a little half and half just to make it like a little creamy. So you have this bed of like creamy, bright green peas. You put the fish cakes on top. I put some lemon zest in them so you can just cut up that zested lemon and squeeze the fresh lemon over. So it tastes nice and fresh and, you know, it's colorful and it's fun. And it's also made of like pantry ingredients and it's not that expensive and you don't have to chop anything. All you have to do is cut up the lemon. That's it. It looks amazing on the plate. Yeah. 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 I think um, I'm a really bad Catholic, but my mother's coming over tonight. So <laughs> I can't I can't have meat because it's Lent. You just gave me my um, my dinner for her. <laughs> hey, there you go. Oh, fun. Yeah, you could also, if you do, if you have kimchi in your fridge, you could chop some up and mix it with like a little bit of mayonnaise, make like a kimchi mayo, almost like a remoulade sauce. Yes. That would be so good with those. This episode yeah, of Seasoned great. brought to you by Kimchi and Plums <laughs> Cream Cheese. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Uh, Julia, I got to ask you about the vegan chili, the best vegan chili. I made a pretty delicious chili. We, we were calling it a couple years ago when it was like the year of the pulse where we were doing you know, all the gooms and beans, they were calling them pulses. And I made this amazing vegan chili out of that myself. And I really fell in love with it. So I'm curious about your recipe. This one starts with a block of firm tofu that you press. So you put, you know, wrap it like in a kitchen towel and put like a heavy pan on top or something. Just get the excess moisture out. Mm -hmm. And then I crumble it. And it basically is the kind of size and texture and sort of familiar, um, I don't know, familiarity, I guess, of like ground meat. Ground beef, yeah. You brown it in a skillet with like a ton of spices and you really brown it. I put in the recipe, like, don't stir this a lot, like really let it get a nice little crisp on it. And with all the spices, including like smoked paprika, you know, pimentone, which makes it taste kind of smoky, it really kind of mimics ground beef. And then you mix it with, you know, some onions and peppers, canned tomatoes and beans. You put in that seasoned kind of crunchy tofu you know, which will soften as it cooks, but that texture just lets it kind of take on some more flavor. And then the other kind of little trick I guess I do is put in a couple tablespoons, just a little bit of cornmeal. And what that does is it just helps thicken the chili because I find so many vegetarian and vegan chilies, it's almost a little bit like tomato, like a minestrone soup yeah, <laughs> that completely. has like a lot of beans in it. Like it's missing that kind of thickness that comes with like the fat from, you know, beef and yeah. that little bit of cornmeal just makes it like a little thick just a little bit and it just makes it super satisfying and I love it my best friend actually just made it for her husband who's like a big meat eater uh -huh. and she just didn't say anything she was like I made chili for dinner you know they sat down they had a few bowls and then she was like hey guess what that was vegan and he had like no idea wow, wow. <laughs> It's funny we're, we're we're running like parallel here with brands because the first thing I think when I'm when I got challenged to make this particular chili was I hate these vegan chilies they're so watery and it feels like a soup mm -hmm. chili I actually took so all of I had all these legumes you could think of you know lentils different types of beans I took some red kidney beans and I pureed them and I add the bean puree into the soup to get that texture in there which is pretty cool oh smart yeah super smart wish I had thought of that that's a great <laughs> I wish I thought of the cornmeal idea. The cornmeal idea works great too. I've made neither of these, but will happily eat both of them. <laughs> so whenever you guys are ready, I've got my awesome. spoon and ladle ready. I feel like I'm getting smarter here just talking to Julius. This is great. I think uh, one of the other recipes we liked a lot in this book was the uh, white pizza style kale. Mm. I mean, listen, we grow the biggest kale plants here at my house. I can't wait till the summer to give this a try. Awesome. I think you picked like my favorite recipe in the book. 
or I don't know. I love so many of the recipes. I love them all, but this is the one I make most often. So it is basically just a big skillet of like super garlicky kale. I mean, you could use whatever greens. Um, you could do this with broccoli. I have rainbow char. Oh yeah, my, that would be rainbow great. Rainbow char in my, in my crisper. Totally. So just, you know, because I'm little... making this tomorrow. I'm still being a bad <laughs> Catholic, but I'm going to stick to this. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah. Just a little garlic and oil. You add the greens, you know, some salt, and then you dot the top of the greens with some ricotta cheese you know, which you might have left over from the salmon. Case. I still have. <laughs> and then uh, some mozzarella and you just stick the pan under the broiler. And then when you take it out, you put all the things that I love to put on a slice of New York pizza. So a little garlic powder, a little dried oregano, you can put some chili flake if you want like a little kick. And basically you get all the flavors of white pizza, which to me is like one of the most delicious things on this big pan of greens. And I just think this recipe is like, representative of all the recipes in the book you know super healthy it's a ton of kale it's also really fun <laughs> you know i think healthy food can be fun like we've been talking about yeah and it's like a little unexpected but it's also really simple like you know you just put a little cheese on top stick it under the broiler like it's not so much extra work it's one pan it's easy to clean up and it goes well with anything like you can serve that with roast chicken you could bake some potatoes you know regular ones or sweet potatoes scoop that you know inside very, very versatile. I'm glad you picked that one out. I love that recipe. I can't wait to try that one. That one sounds amazing. Looks like your Spectrum <laughs> cable guy is finally there. I was just going to yeah. say, your cable guys are there. Yeah, or cable girls. Who it's, knows? It's, yeah, yeah no, exactly. Yeah, it's all happening. I didn't know it was going to happen right now. But... <laughs> well, we're going to get our cream cheese, our kimchi, um, and something else. I can't even remember because now I'm starving. Uh, you take care of your internet. Tell your pups we said hello. Yeah, you you two have been really just very kind during this. this is we are, we're only meeting your kindness with our own. So thank you for your time. Can you see this huge I love it. This ladder happening? I love it. Go, go inside and make them some everything bagel with ham pies. <laughs> I know. I need to I need to make this guy something. He's doing a lot right now and he's definitely improving my life. So I gotta take care of him. <laughs> but thank you so much. It was so fun to talk to you. I'm sorry I wasn't in the quietest place I could be, but it was still so much oh, fun. Julia, you're a legend. We appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was <laughs> thank awesome. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That was Julia Tertian. Can you tell we're fans? Julia is the co-author of many cookbooks and the author of Small Victories, Feed the Resistance, and Now and Again. Her latest book is Simply Julia, 110 Easy Recipes for Healthy Comfort Food. You'll find three recipes from the book, including that potato chip crusted salmon cake, yummy, and yummy looking breakfast nachos, right on our website, ctpublic.org seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we talk to two chefs about what it's like to cook for priests at the Pastoral Center in Bloomfield and the sisters at Sacred Heart Manor in Hamden. Every day after a meal, we get anywhere from six to eight to 10 sisters stopping by and thanking us for everything we do. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Restaurant chefs are one type of chef. But honestly, there are so many ways to cook professionally. 
They're private chefs and caterers like me. I have friends who run a meal prep business. We've had food truck chefs and culinary professors on the show. There are resort and hotel chefs, hospital chefs, and corporate chefs. For a very short time in my career, I actually cooked at a rectory. And with Easter here and the spring holidays, this got us wondering what it might be like to cook for the clergy today. Our next guests are Chef Gordon Losey and Chef David Makar. Gordon is the executive chef and conference manager at the Pastoral Center at the offices of the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Hartford, which is in Bloomfield. David is the food service director at the Sacred Heart Manor, serving the retired Sisters of the Apostles of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in Hampton. So before our chefs talk about their work, we asked if they'd tell us a little about their backgrounds and how they became cooks for the clergy. Gordon starts us off. Well, I was um, going to be a school teacher, went to college, did not like it, and uh, decided that I should travel from Connecticut to ski land, Vail, Colorado, and that's where I was classically trained in French cuisine. After that uh, adventure, I um, came back to New England, but I've been in the business for 43 years now. I worked in all different entities. I've done pastry chef, uh, sous chef, executive chef. I've been in healthcare. I've been in the restaurant industry. And I landed here 18 years ago, not thinking I would be here past maybe four or five years. And I've been here ever since. (laughs) Interesting. And David, how about you? How how's your story end up taking you to where you are now? I actually went to um, Johnson Wales right out of high school. And I got my associates in culinary arts and my bachelor's in food service management. I have worked in restaurants. I have worked in catering, hotels, healthcare. I've been at my job for about 11 years. So, Jeff, it seems like we're both pretty happy where we're at. It's pretty good. Yeah. So here I am, and I have no plans on going anywhere. Hmm. Do you have job security when you have God on your side? <laughs> It feels like it. As long like as I can it. keep the nuns happy, uh, <laughs> yeah. What is it like cooking for men and women who have dedicated their lives to religious service? Do you feel there's any added pressure? Is it a privilege? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I wonder if you wouldn't mind describing what it is like to have that responsibility. Well, Jeff Gordon, if you don't mind, I'll go. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you asked if there was any added pressure, and I say absolutely not, because in point of fact, our sisters are are really kind of plain Jane. You know, they're they're quite content getting pasta and meatballs once a week, and and meatloaf at least once a week. Now, our sisters like their desserts, but we try to give them healthier things, like at nighttime. We really only put out fresh fruit for them, fresh fruit and jello. So it's really, we're not particularly cooking difficult items. However, I will say that one of the best benefits as a chef working here is our kitchen is right off the dining room. And, um, you know, every day after a meal, we get anywhere from six to eight to 10 sisters stopping by and thanking us for a good meal and thanking us for everything we do. And I know I'm not speaking just for myself. It's for the staff too. It kind of makes you want to go that little extra effort, whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's dressing up the, the plates that we put out or making a little bit extra as a salad on the side. 
So there's certainly no more pressure and there's a lot more thanks. So I know I'm, I'm much happier cooking here than I have anywhere else because we get appreciated and we get acknowledged and that's never a bad thing. No, it's definitely not. You always have to be told when your food's good, right? Yeah, absolutely. But what about when the food's not good? Will they tell you? Well, they, they can, I don't mean not good. Let me rephrase that. If the food is something that they didn't like as much, they still come by and say, hey, thanks for dinner, but let me tell you something, that veal piccata, don't do that guy again. Yeah, well, and anytime you have a group of people, you know, even though in my particular place, place they're sisters, they're still people. You know, and everybody has their own likes and dislikes. And um, we have certain sisters that will report every day, whether they liked it or not. We have some that will only tell you if they liked it. So it's kind of, I kind of judge whether they liked it or not by how many people are stopping at the door. And it's, I mean, with us, it's, it's not that hard to figure out a lot of it. You know, how much food comes back tells me if they liked it or not. And if something doesn't go over that well, I simply don't serve it again. Sure. We're very fortunate to be in the position we're in. They do treat us, I can speak for myself, they treat us with a, a good amount of respect. And they, they appreciate what we do. And once again, they will let you know. I think our priests are a little more vocal, maybe. They will let you know if they don't like something. Like eggplant is something that they just don't like collectively. So we won't serve it. This is all fascinating to me because I am a Catholic. I was born and raised Catholic and, you know, always saying grace before every meal to this day. We still do it. I do it now with my own children. But I have to say growing up, you know, with the stares of the sisters when I was at CCD, when I would ask questions that they didn't want to ask, I always had this particular vision of what priests and sisters did when they were not doing service, right? When they were not saying the homily to me or when they were not, you know, smacking me in the back of my head because I was in the confessional line poking someone next to me. So can you dispel the myth for me? Who says grace, right? So at my house, it's the eldest. What is it like where you guys are serving meals? Um, is there talking? Do they drink wine? Is it the same wine that I get um, pre-COVID when I would go get the Eucharist? Please help a Catholic sister out. And by sister, I mean small S, not capital S. Thank you. <laughs> well, I guess I could go first and say that it um, doesn't matter what time, what place, if it's a Friday, they are still abiding by we have to have fish or something, pasta with shrimp, primavera, something like that. Even when it's not the Lenten season? Correct. They are old school. All these guys are old school. They all sit down before dinner and they cross themselves. Every single one of them say a little prayer. I see that every day. So it's commonplace for me to see that. Um, yes, they partake of wine occasionally here. So and they try to outdo each other with ordering wine from the local package store. <laughs> it's kind of comical. But uh I treat them just like regular gentlemen, just like anybody else. And I think they appreciate that more than you'll know. I would agree with that. I mean, we love myself and the kitchen staff. We are always laughing and joking with the sisters. And, you know, I think it was you, Marcel, saying, you know, while they weren't rapping you on the back of, of your head, you know, I'm sure that there were some sisters from the old school that might have been knuckle rappers. But honestly, the sisters that we have here now, I can't see it. I really can't see it. So we, we treat them just like we do any other, any other people. Now, 
we're at an RCH home, so it's kind of like assisted living to a certain extent nursing, and we mm-hmm. have an Alzheimer's ward. And there's five sisters upstairs in the Alzheimer's ward, but all the rest eat in the dining room, and it's the mother superior of the house that leads them in prayer every day. It's the same prayer before every meal, and I actually go out and join them quite often, although I am not Catholic myself. That's great. And as far as the wine goes, our sisters are teetotalers. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we'll put out sparkling, non-alcoholic wine. But as far as if we open a bottle of wine, it'll last a month of Sundays. That's funny. How are some of the ways that you're cooking now um, for the nuns and the, the priests and the pastors? How is it different than cooking at other restaurants or cooking where you may have cooked before? Go ahead, Dave. Um, you know, if I was if I was writing my menu up in a restaurant, I would try to be as creative and different and put my own twist on every item on the menu. Sisters aren't necessarily like that. You know, the sisters, they want meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and gravy. They don't want meatloaf wrapped in bacon or with hard-boiled eggs in the middle of it or something like that. They just want meatloaf. How about you, Gordon? For us here, it's a very captive audience. Most of the retired priests here are between the ages of 75 and 92. So you have to do things a little differently, but they also are very pattern-driven gentlemen. They want their meatloaf. They want their pot roast. And you can do some a little bit fancier things, more uh, like you could do rack of lamb or you could do veal chops, things of that nature. But they want to know when you write menus what they're actually getting. In other words, don't delineate from that meatloaf recipe. Make that one meatloaf that and, and don't delineate. And have you tried to, to see if they can notice a difference? Yeah, they know. They can, they can notice those things. Um, we, we try to be as consistent as possible. So, and, and that's what they appreciate the most. We are very consistent with what we do and how we do it. Um, the stress level here was never, never anything like the restaurant world or actually in business and industry uh, before I came here. I worked for three different archbishops. They would actually come into the kitchen and thank every single one of us. And that that just doesn't happen in what I would call the real culinary world, where you're lucky if you get an attaboy. And here, they tell you all the time they really appreciate what we do for them. And you just don't get that in the restaurant field. So it's it's a validation of what you're doing. And you you feel it's more a community kind of thing here. You know, it's a really good atmosphere to be in. I agree with that 100%. It's a completely different atmosphere. It's a family atmosphere. You know, it's not nameless faces in your dining room. You're cooking for your family. So what are Gordon and David making for their work families for Easter? The retired priests will start off with a little Sunday brunch. Scrambled eggs, bacon, sausage, English muffins, scones. And then their dinner will be uh, roasted domestic rack of lamb with uh, tornade uh, red blitz potatoes and uh, julienne mixed vegetables. Got to make sure we have our mint jelly. I asked them what they wanted for their dinner, and they were insistent on rack of lamb, not leg of lamb. So that's what we're doing for our guys here. Well, my sisters, I would love to do something different, but they're so traditional that um, 
you can guess what we're doing. We're doing a spiral ham with a honey mustard glaze on it. Yeah, ham. <laughs> and, of course, they want their sweet potatoes to go with their ham. And we'll do fresh uh, haricot verbs. My sisters don't really eat that much. Like Chef Gordon said that they're going to do a nice Sunday brunch. If we tried to do a brunch, nobody would eat anything for lunch. You know, <laughs> we'll just do panettone French toast or something for them for breakfast. And then their big meal of the day is, and that's what they requested. So it'll be a spiral ham. Hey, spiral ham is delicious. Don't, we're not hating on that. I love a good spiral ham. <laughs> Don't knock the spiral ham. I know. Yeah, that's what we're having for my house for Easter dinner. Tell you the truth, I'd rather have the rack of lamb myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both so much for your time and your energy and your anecdotes. You have definitely dispelled all the myths from this Catholic girl. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having us. That was Chef Gordon Losey and Chef David Maycar. Gordon cooks at the Pastoral Center in Bloomfield and David at Sacred Heart Manor in Hamden. Both chefs did report that the retirees they cook for do in fact have a sweet tooth. Priests can eat their weight in vanilla lactate ice cream apparently. And the sisters at the manor have a not-so-secret snack stash in their kitchenettes. And you'll go down into the kitchenette and you'll open up the cabinets and there's cookies and candies and chips and all kinds of snacks over there. God bless you, sisters. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Season is produced by Robin Doyen Aiken and Katie Talarski. Our interns are Zakina Collier and Joseph Vasquez. Thanks for listening, everyone. Happy holidays to those who celebrate. See you next week.